Uh, so Judges, we are in the book of Judges, Old Testament book, chapter 3. And uh, it's going to be a fun, fun week for us. A story I've been kind of excited to share with you all. So the week that we had our one-year celebration, we had a big, a big thing here, and then we all went to Jordan Valley Park. Remember that? Just kind of for a barbecue and cookout. And so as the cookout was winding down, after we ate, if you remember, all the kids went down to the fountains and were playing in the fountains. So I was, during the barbecue, I was talking to uh, my friend Royce, uh, and, uh, who who's leads my, my city group. And we're sitting there talking, and Royce, one of Royce's sons come up and says, Dad... Can I go to the fountains? And Royce looks at him and says, well, we're going to be leaving soon, and if you go to the fountains, you'll have to ride home wet. And so it's probably not a good idea because we're going to leave soon. And his son replies, but Dad, I'm just going to put my feet in the water. And so Royce and I look at each other with kind of that like little, little, uh, little smile, and he says, okay, you're just going to put your feet in the water? Yeah, Dad. But, but all the other kids, they're, I mean, look, they're down there swimming in it, right? And they're, they're so, yeah, but Dad, I promise I'm just going to put my feet in. He's okay, if you're just going to put your feet in, because remember, we have to, to leave soon, and we don't want you to want to have to ride home wet. And so, and he's like, oh, Dad, I promise. And he takes off running towards the water. And so Royce and I are laughing, saying, yeah, we kind of know where this is. Well, I get a text uh, about 10 minutes later um, from Royce, who went to get his son to go leave home. Remember the son that was just going to put his feet in the water. And this is the text that I get on my phone. (laughs) And just leave that up. And here's why I told that story. If I could summarize the book of Judges, it is right there. Israel telling God, hey God, we're just gonna live here. We're just gonna live close to these people. But we promise, God, we're not going to fall into what, into what they do. And then Israel, whoo, right there. The best picture of the book of Judges, Deuteronomy 7, as we, as we kind of kicked off this series, says this. God tell, talking to Israel, when the Lord your God gives them over to you, that's your enemies, and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction That's your enemies. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. So God's promise to Israel, he made a covenant with them and says, listen, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a land, an inheritance. All these great things are going to happen. But here's the deal. When you go into battle in this land of Canaan, your promised land, you must drive these people out because God knew what would happen if they allowed them to stay and how their culture would permeate into the Israelite culture. You must drive them out. And whatever you do, don't marry them. Don't intermarry with them. That's, a, that's the, the covenant that God made with Israel in Deuteronomy. And one thing we see with God's covenants, sometimes his covenants are unconditional. So he made a covenant that he would send the Savior through the line of, um, of Abraham and then David And no matter what Israel did and how wicked they got, he was going to fulfill that covenant. However, some of his covenants and promises are conditional, as with Israel. Drive them out, don't marry them, follow me, and I will bless you. And then we get to Judges chapter 3, verse 5. So the people of Israel 
lived among the Canaanites. Lived among them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took for themselves as wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. In the fountain, soaking wet, thumbs up. Now, we talked about this week one, and if you're just in here, you need to go back and listen to the podcast and catch up on where we've been. It's going to give you some context. We can't be too hard on the Israelites. Because I would, I would dare to bet if we found ourselves in that same situation of God saying, go to this land, drive all these people out, and we look at this land that's prosperous and these beautiful cities and culture and arts and all these things, it would seem easier for us just to kind of blend in with them. Why would we destroy all of these good things? And so this belief of, well, it's not a big deal just to live among them is going to, to give rise to arrogance, self-sufficiency, a false sense of security. Yeah, it's no big deal. We can live among these people who we just defeated, and they're not ever going to rise up against us. Yahweh, the God of Israel, becomes irrelevant to them. Verse 7, And the Lord and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Remember week one, we talked about the slow slide of disobedience. That disobedience leads to apathy. Just a, eh, no big deal. But apathy leads to apostasy, which is a walking away from God. And look what it says in verse 7. They forgot the Lord their God. Apathy. And served the Baals and Asherah, apostasy. See, one thing is to forget and just, eh. But it's another to actively serve another God. And if you remember from week one, those gods uh, that, we, that was just mentioned, the way you serve those gods was really sick and morbid, included child sacrifice. And Israel is now taking part in this. And it says, they, they forgot the Lord their God. They had no use for them. They served these other gods. Verse 8, therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hands of Kishon Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kishon Rishathayim eight years. So God, because of their rebellion, remember, he promises, if you walk away from me, bad things will come to you. Harm will come to you. And so because of this, the Lord kindled, which is God actively caused this other nation to come and defeat Israel. Notice it took them eight years of being enslaved over this group of people before they ever cry out to God. And this introduces us, last week we introduced this idea of cycles and that every time in the book of Judges, every chapter you see this cycle. And here's the cycle that we see. The people rebel, which is what we just read. They started serving these other gods. God gets angry. We just read that. The Lord's anger was kindled against them. Oppression by enemies. God allows or God sends another nation, another enemy to come and conquer Israel. 
And if you know ancient history, and we'll look at that a little bit this week and for sure next week, conquering nation is not just they come and put a flag up. It is vicious. We'll get to some of that. Oppressed or conquered by enemies. Number four, the people finally cry out. They realize like they've had enough, and they say, oh, my goodness, look back at Deuteronomy. God said this would happen if we did this, and they cry out to God for help. Number five, God sends salvation or victory through a judge. And remember, we talked about a judge as not like a, a guy with a black coat and a gavel. A judge is usually a military-type leader. And then the judge secures victory, and there's peace in the land. Forever, however long that judge lives and that generation that kind of realized what happened when they walked away, however long that generation lives and that judge lives, there's peace. But then eventually, the judge dies and the cycle starts again. And so we see this, this cycle here in, in verse 8. And God sends this king of Mesopotamia to conquer Israel. Notice, if God had not brought suffering, the people would have remained Serving the Baals. Because some of you can see that. Well, how could a loving God send another nation to conquer Israel and kill men, kill children, and rape women? How? And what we're going to find out of the book of Judges is God does allow suffering, and sometimes God even sends someone to cause suffering, but that suffering is motivated by his love, that the people would turn back to him. God allows Israel to get a little taste of what judgment is like. And they get it for eight years. And after eight years, they finally cry out and say, God, help us. And now we have the cycle where God sends the first deliverer. Verse 9, he's going to send a judge. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Kishon Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over him. So God raises up this leader named Othniel. Now, if you're taking notes, the name Othniel means Lion from the tribe of Judah. So Othniel comes from this tribe of Judah, one of, the, one of the, the Israeli tribes, and his name is Lion. Now this is my type of judge, right? I mean, he's got the face painted, think Mel Gibson. Remember it? Face painted, probably even has a kilt on, right? Just because that's, a, and, and he comes, and he, and, and what's interesting here is the Bible doesn't give us much uh, much of a story of what's going on, but we know this guy named Othniel rises up, and he goes to, to war. Now, in Judges 1, you don't have to turn there, in verse 12, Othniel showed up before in a previous battle. And here's what verse, uh, chapter 1 or verse 12 says. Caleb said, Caleb the leader of Israel said, He who attacks Kerasophur, which is the nation they were fighting, and captures it, I will give him my daughter. So here's, the, here's the, uh, the call. Imagine all these generals out here. Hey, whichever one of you goes and, and captures this city, you can have my daughter as a wife. And all those guys are like, all right, let's go. Well, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him 
his wife. And so Othniel's the guy, out of all these military leaders, Othniel's the guy that goes and he captures the city and wins his bride. And so when God raises up this guy named Othniel, this guy is strong. He is battle-hardened. He is what we would say a five-star general. The whole pat, the whole sleeve is decorated. And all we get of this in this chapter, in this section, is he went to war. Now, if you're taking notes, here's what you can write in parentheses. He kicked butt and took names. Because we don't get this story of how he went and he got defeated. All we get is he went to war, and it seems like he just kind of wiped out the enemy. And there was really no fanfare. There was no great, great drama. They just went to war, and they crushed him. Probably got the finest warriors of Israel to to come and go do battle. And then verse 11, to complete this cycle, so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So Israel sins, they cry out to God, God sends Othniel, this battle-hardened general, he goes out and he leads this charge, they defeat their enemies, peace in the land But then Othniel dies. And when the judge dies, now starts the slippery slope. Verse 12. And the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened, notice, active hand of God. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites. I cannot say these things. I practice all week and I get up here and I just forget them. And went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So after Othniel dies, people rebel. God sends another nation to conquer them, and this conquering nation is over them for 18 years. Now, do you see what city they took possession of? This king, Eglon, do you see what city he took possession of? The city of Palms. Now, the question, what is the city of Palms? Because if you're familiar with your Bible, this is a very important note. The city of Palms is Jericho. Anyone remember the story of Jericho? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. 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 I could sing the song, but I won't. Right? The city of Palms, Jericho, was the first and greatest victory that the Israelite army had had. I mean, they go to Jericho, they march around with the marching band a few times, the walls come down, they go and they capture. I mean, this is their flagship victory. This is the one that they tell their, their kids and their grandkids about. Remember the time when we defeated Jericho, and now God sends this king in, and he takes back the city of Jericho. The place where God had given Israel their biggest and most glorious victory is now the place of defeat and embarrassment. This week, I I was trying to think of an equivalent to this. For America, and as we come on Independence Weekend, like what would be an equivalent of, of Israel losing Jericho after it's kind of been their biggest, biggest victory? And here, here is my thought, and I don't know if this, if this is right. 9-11 happens 
right? And we, America gets under attack, and we go to war on terror, and we defeat our enemies. And I, I was in New York just a few months ago, and the place where the Twin Towers now is now this really big tower called Freedom Tower, right? And it's this place where we can look back and remember that though there's terror in the world, we'll not give up, and we'll keep fighting, and we're not going to we're not going to be put down. And I think the maybe equivalent for America is what happened if on the 4th of July that tower was leveled. And not just leveled, but whoever leveled it now occupies us and we are enslaved. That's the best equivalent I could think of for, to help us understand what this would have meant to Israel to have their greatest area of victory, the greatest blessing God had given them. Destroyed. So Israel's sin brought devastation to one of the biggest blessings the Lord had for them. Reminds me of John chapter 10. Jesus says this, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. See, evil's job is to destroy what God created for good. Evil's role is some of the greatest blessings that the God has given us that evil would come in and destroy that. And again, as I'm thinking, what does this mean for us? Where do we see this? What, where's an area that God has given us for blessing and flourishment that in our culture, evil wants to destroy? And here's where I came up with marriage and sexuality. One of the greatest blessings that God has given us is marriage and the beautiful picture of the gospel that that is and then that gift of sexuality I mean think about it. he could have made babies happen by giving a high five right but he didn't he made that a great thing that we would enjoy and that it would point to his glory the role of evil is to destroy what God created for good and we've heard stories about how evil has destroyed this whether it's sexual abuse whether it's pornography whether it's a sexual addiction but as we talked about week one, oftentimes evil's role is not just like this hard, um, in-your-face, like pornography addiction type thing, but it's this really slow little subtle slide of devaluing something. Remember the screw, tape, the screw tape letters I read in week one, where you have this, it's a fictional story of this demon writing to this younger demon on how to make humans stumble and fall. And here's what he says, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. See, one of evil's role is to destroy what God's created for good. And what, how he does that is very, very subtly that we would start to devalue. And we see it in our culture, we see it in our church, the devaluing of marriage. The devaluing of sexuality as God's created it. In my study, I came across a book, uh, Dr. G-Day Unwin. He had wrote a book called Sex and Culture, and this is fascinating. He studied 86 different cultures from world history, not just now, but world history. He studied 86 different cultures to see what th that were strong, and then they, they went down. Like, they were flourishing, and then they crashed. 86 different cultures. Here's what he found that, that strung them all together. Here's what he says, quote, Sexual fidelity was the single most important predictor of a society's superiority and influence. Think of the weight of that statement. The single most important predictor of a society's superiority and influence. 
in human records, there is no instance of a society returning its energy after a complete new generation has inherited a tradition which does not insist on pre- and post-marriage fidelity. In other words, a society is doomed when it walks away from God's design of marriage and places a high value on faithfulness. And here we are. And I'm not talking out there. I'm talking in the church. Here we are. Do we have a high view of marriage as God's created it to be? Because this researchers say the single most um, important factor that will cause the demise of a nation is a devaluing of what God has created. Obedience and apostasy, disobedience to apostasy is a very slow slide. And what God has created for good and for human flourishing, we are on the verge of twisting and seeing demise. And so that's what happened. Israel teaches us here, and it should be a warning, like all of our red flags should go off, that, that righteousness leads to flourishing, individuals and a nation, and disobedience leads to sin and death for individuals and a nation. And this has happened to Israel. The place where God had given them the greatest victory has now become their biggest defeat. Verse 14, And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years, and he's occupying the city of Jericho. Verse 15, Then the people cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud. There's no relation. Ehud, son of... Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now, I've been waiting for this story. This is so good. So God raises up this guy named Ehud, and we, haven't, we don't know. He just kind of appears. Here he is, this guy Ehud, and it says that he is a left-handed man. Now, why is that detail important to the story? We have to know the context, and we have to know the context of the ancient world. Here's what we know from the ancient world that the right hand was a symbol of power and ability. The left hand was a symbol of weakness and sin and evil. Okay, and, and, and the ancient world is very unaccommodating. It's cruel. They didn't treat people with disabilities well. And left-handed people were viewed as far less superior than right-handed people. Okay, and then as I did some research on just ancient belief about left hand, Joan of Arc, born, or I'm sorry, burned at the stake for heresy, in all of history is depicted as being left-handed, but no one actually knows if she was left-handed. Just because she was depicted as evil and burned as a heretic, well, she had to have been left-handed, of course. Um, how many of you have a wedding ring on your left hand? So I, I found that wedding rings worn on the left hand originated with the Greeks and Romans. They wore them on the left hand to fend off evil that's associated with the left hand. And now you have your wedding, and we're not going to go into that at all, but now you have your wedding ring on the left hand, and the origination of that is the belief that the left hand was evil. We need a ring on it to fend off evil. The Bible contains over 100 favorable references to the right hand and 25 unfavorable references to the left hand. In those days, the left hand was seen as a sign of, of weakness. 
And left-handers are annoying at dinner tables because they bump everyone's elbow, right? And they think that the world should revolve around them. There's this funny story, and I, didn't, I almost put the quote in. I didn't have time. Burger King did a false ad several years ago where they advertised a left-handed Whopper that was equal, like the weight distributor of the ingredients were perfect, that a left, it fits in a left-hander's mouth. And they did this in USA Today, basically just to you know, create a media buzz, but they actually had people go into the store and order the left-handed Whopper because lefties think that the world should revolve around them, right? So in the ancient world, the left hand is viewed unclean. Uh, even in my trips to Africa, you always shake with the right hand in Africa. Always. Because in a society without toilet paper, the left hand is used for other things. Yes. So when the Bible says that Ehud is a lefty, this is important. And most commentaries think he wasn't just see what he was left-handed. They probably think that his right hand was deformed in some way. Either it had been hurt or there was a, a, some type of growth that, that somehow he can't use his right hand. But here's what we must know. Ehud would have been perceived as weak and that the gods had cursed him that he was a lefty. So Othniel, our first leader, he was a typical, he was strong, five-star general, goes and defeats his enemies, wins his wife. Let's send him again. He defeats the other. Like, that's the perfect deliverer. But Ehud, the lefty, a very unlikely candidate. Now, the story that we're going to tell is meant to be read out loud. If you go back to when this book's written, we didn't have Bibles, didn't have printing press, if you're going to hear the story um, back in the days of, of Israel, you're going to hear this read out loud, and there's a reason for it because the tension is beautiful. And in verse 15, the people of Israel sent tribute by him. That's Ehud. They sent tri tribute to King Eglon, king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. So the people send Ehud to give, make tribute to Eglon. Now, here's what happens in those days. Here's what it means to make tribute. If you were a conquered nation, which Israel is right now, there's another nation that's conquering. What, that would, what happened is every so often, let's say once a year, you would have to go make tribute to that king. And so that was you would send a person. They would offer um, gifts and, and money. And it's basically payment to say, don't come and destroy us anymore. This would have had huge fanfare. It was meant to hum humiliate the conquered nation. And so Israel has to send someone to take that money to Eglon, and they send Ehud to do it. Now, here's where the tension starts to build, because the narrator lets us in on a little secret about our little lefty Ehud, that he is not going just with the tribute of money, that he is going armed. He's an assassin. And he goes and he makes this sword, this little, this little knife, and he straps it on the right side of his thigh, right down here, underneath his clothes. So our weak, little incapable left-handed man is armed. And now begins one of those epic stories of the Old Testament that I absolutely love. Because with Othniel, here's what we get. He went to war and he defeated him. Ah, that's not very exciting. But with Eglon, we get the whole story in black and white, or in color, slow motion. So the Bible didn't say he goes out and he kills someone. No, 
it's going to bring us in on this, on this story, and he's going to let us know what no one else at the time knows, Eglon is armed. Now, I told you week one, as we read these judges, I'm always thinking, I'm always picturing them as a, as a contemporary character. And who would we think of as Eglon? And here's my best, here's my best one. Um, any any uh, Tombstone fans out there? Val Kilmer, Doc Holliday, that's Ehud. He has a southern draw, right? He's coughing from tuberculosis. He's kind of weak. He has some great one-liners. I'm your huckleberry. You know, all those type of things. That's, that's who Ehud is. No, he is so unlikely. No one, like he's not ripped out. He's not walking around. You know, all the ladies are like, ooh, look at, no. He is weak. Verse 17. And so Eglon goes, or I'm sorry, Ehud goes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And so he goes and he presents this tribute. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. I love it. You can't make this stuff up, right? You got Ehud the lefty and Eglon the fatty, right? And that's, that's what we have here. So Eglon goes, I'm, I get these names, Ehud, I'm getting too excited for this story. Ehud goes to offer you this tribute. Remember, this would have been, they would have had a huge ceremony. He would have walked down as this Israelite who used to own or used to rule the city and now they're conquered. And he had to give this tribute of money. Eglon, please don't destroy us. Here's your money. But remember, he's packing. And we learn the Bible teaches us another thing that's crucial to this story, that Eglon is a fat, fat man. Now, here's who I picture. Jabba the Hutt, right? Without Princess Leia tied to him, but Jabba the Hutt. So we have... Doc Holliday versus Jabba the Hutt is who the story is going to unfold here, all right? And now the tension's building, and we have this left-handed, crippled man, and no one thinks to search him. Because if you're going to go offer tribute before the king, they're normally going to search you, right? Just like we would if you got to go to the president, you're going through metal detectors. They would have searched him, but when they see this little crippled man, they don't think to search him. And in those days, you wore your sword on the opposite side. So if they did search him, not knowing he was left-handed, they would have searched over here as you draw your sword across. So the tension's building. Can Eglon, can Ehud get close to him? If he does get close, will he have the courage to stick the knife? If he does do it, will he get captured? Let's find out what happens. Verse 18. Can you tell I've been excited for this story? Like I love, like, historical war movies are my favorite. I just, I just love this stuff. Verse 18, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tributes, here we go, he gives this tribute to the king. He sent away the people who carried the tribute. So Ehud gets close to him, but he doesn't do it. Seems like he got cold feet. And so, verse 19, but he himself turned back to the idols near Gilgal. All right, let's stop right there. So here's what happens. He goes and offers his tribute in the king's court, all these people around. He's loaded. He's packing with the knife. And he offers a tribute, and he doesn't do anything with it. And he's leaving. And he's walking out of the city, and he goes by, and he goes by the, the idols near Gilgal. Now, here's what these were. These would have been idols that this king Eglon would have put there to make fun of the Israelite nation saying, yeah, you have your big God. Well, look who's big now. Here's my idol to prove it. And so Ehud, our Doc Holiday type guy, is walking back, and he sees these idols, and he turns around. 
verse 19. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, and this is the great Doc Holliday line, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, the king commanded, silence, which, here's what that just meant. Everyone, leave. And so the king, because we have this little crippled man, dismisses everyone and says, you all leave because I have a secret message from God and I want to find out what it is. So he says, I have a secret message for you, O king. And all of his attendants went out of his presence. Verse 20. And Ehud came to him, and as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber, in this little separate room, and said, I have a message from God for you. Love it. And so the king arises from the seat, and Ehud reaches with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into the belly of Jabba the hut. And the hilt went in after the blade, a little, little guard on the, on the knife, so much that the fat closed over the blade. And he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And I'm, sorry for the, I'm not sorry for the detail. And the dung came out. It's the Bible. you got to love it, right? So our assassin gets alone with the king. King's not expecting anything. He says, I have a secret message from God. And he leans in, and instead of a secret message, he gives him a message, a dagger right into the belly, so much that all of his entrails and other stuff came out. Now, I love this part, 23. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof behind him and locked them. So the king sends everyone out. They go to this separate room. Ehud shoves a sword into his belly, and this king, who's probably not dead yet, but has his sword in his belly, and Ehud just very coolly just walks out and shuts the door and walks on out. Verse 24, And when he had gone, the servants of the king came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, this is so good, surely he's relieving himself in the closet, in the cool chamber. Like, here's the first rule, you don't interrupt a guy that's going to the bathroom, right? You leave him alone, especially if he's a king and he has your head cut off if you do. And they waited till they were embarrassed. So, like, he's in there a long time. Like, man, that must be, like, a good one, right? <laughs> and they waited till they were embarrassed. But when they still did not open the doors of the root chamber, they took to the key and opened them. And there lay their dead, their Lord dead on the floor. So the servants wait forever to check on him. They think he's going to the bathroom. And they could smell. Remember the stuff came out? They could smell that he was going to the bathroom. And to give him plenty of time, they waited, but apparently they waited too long, and they go in, and he is dead. Verse 26, and Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarai. And so you, you know as he passed beyond those idols, he's like, yeah, I showed you. Verse 28, and he said, then he said to them, this is Israel, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Is that not a great story? 
right? This unlikely judge, this left-handed man that would have been weak and perceived as weak was sent as tribute. No one knew what he was doing, but while he's there, he kills the king, goes back, and he blows the horn, basically this call to arms for Israel. And here's the deal. They would have never followed him before had it not been for this big act of, of bravery. And he rallies the troops, and they go kill and defeat the enemy of Moab. Now, here's the question. How do I apply this to our lives? Okay, do I say uh, don't get fat because thing bad, something bad could happen to you? Don't underestimate left-handers. Um, I was reading one commentary, because in some of these commentaries, they try too hard. And so it was like, the application of this is you take the sword of the spirit, which is the Bible, and you plunge it in the belly of sin. And, but then I was like, well, it breaks down when the dung comes out. Because how, how does that reference in the analogy? What do we do with this story? What does this do for us? Here in 2017, here's what we see. That God didn't use Ehud in spite of his weakness. He used Ehud through his weakness. Like the very thing that would have caused everyone to think, well, there's no way God can use him, is the very thing that God uses. God uses a very unlikely candidate to bring salvation to the land. Here's what 1 Corinthians 1 says. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many for many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. So Paul teaches us here that weakness is actually a gift from God, that he gets the glory for this. And if there's any place that we see weakness or perceived weakness, and what we find a strength is Jesus himself. The reason the Israelites didn't accept Jesus because he was everything that a king and a ruler and a conqueror was not. As they're waiting on the Messiah, they have pictured Othniel. A mighty King David, a guy that can pull out a sword and go conquer nations. And that's who they're waiting for when we get to the days of Jesus. They're conquered by Rome. Their thought is God's going to send a deliverer just like he did in, in, in the book of Judges. And this deliverer's going to come. He's going to defeat the Romans. We're going to have victory. And all of a sudden this guy, this little humble carpenter without a home, says, Hey, I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. And they're like, Yeah, right. You're left-handed. And so we could go that way, that God uses weakness as a strength. And I was praying about where do we wrap this up and how do I bring this to our lives? And here's where I get, um, here's where I got to. And we're going to see this over and over in the book of Judges. That peace is the fruit of obedience. Israel's going to have peace now for 80 years because of one man's obedience. Peace is the fruit of obedience. It says that Ehud judged the people of Israel and they flourished for 80 years. So I'm going to talk to us for a second. I'm going to talk to us about the importance of right leadership. Because here's what we have in this room. We have very gifted leaders. We have some great business leaders. We have moms and dads. We have young people. Every one of us, God has placed in some sort of leadership. 
Some of you very big, some of you very small. But I want us to see, and we'll see it all through the book of Judges, the importance of right leadership, that righteousness and right leadership leads to flourishing of individuals and nations, and sin destroys both. Here's what Proverbs 29 says, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Now, it's easy to take that and look at presidents and political leaders and the kind of the top of, the, of, of all organizations, right? But here's what I want to do today is I want to take this idea that every one of us are leaders at some level. We're leading something, someone. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. That the result of obedience and righteousness is peace and flourishing. There's a podcast I listen to um, on history, and, uh, and I love it. I list all these all these episodes. And the thing that that I've had a weight about over the, as I've been studying this, and I, and I listened just recently to a to a history podcast where it's talking about something that happened in a city called Munster in the 500s. Um, all throughout history. Sin brings destruction and death. And the fallout of that does not play fair. Here's what I mean by that. If you look through history, you have oftentimes men who get arrogant and prideful. And they cause events to happen. And it's fine if they're the only ones that suffer. But usually what ends up happening is Hundreds and hundreds and thousands and millions of innocent people end up suffering very, very greatly. And this one story, this one guy and this stupid thing he did and this prideful thing leads to torture and murder of women and children. That when righteousness happens, people, societies flourish. When sin occurs, people and societies and one of the things Second Corinthians talks about this, um, or I'm sorry, First Corinthians. No, I didn't, I, I didn't put it in my notes. That's all right. Second Corinthians talks about. Thank you, Vanessa. You did. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul's writing to these 2 Corinthians. He's writing because some decisions they've made have caused a lot of problems and a lot of suffering. And here's what he says. As the serpent's deceived, so I'm afraid you have too. Your thoughts will lead you astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, that word sincere is also translated in many versions as simple as a simple and pure devotion to Christ. And here's what we find in the Bible and throughout all of history. Where righteousness flourishes, so does simplicity. And I'm not talking simplicity and just like, like not thinking, that sort of thing. Simplicity meaning not chaos. Where righteousness flourishes, so does simplicity. And so I take that to my life. If righteousness flourishes in my life, I tend to have a simple life. And simple means good. Where unrighteousness flourishes in my life or in other people's lives, here's what happens. Chaos. Trying to delete text messages. Trying to 
cover up emails, trying to figure out what I told this person, what I told this person, how do I keep those stories from coming together? It's chaos. Where righteous flourishes, it's peace. Where sin flourishes, it's chaos. Let me talk to a few leaders here. Husbands. Is there godly peace in your home because of your leadership? Do your, your wife flourish because of your leadership? Do your children flourish because of your leadership? Because of your righteous leadership. I'm not saying you're perfect. But is there flourishing in your home? Men, all men, you don't have to be a husband. Do women flourish under your leadership? And I'm even talking to our young college and youth guys. Do women and girls flourish under your leadership? As I read history and as I study history, what we as men have done to our women in history is horrific. It's absolutely horrific. You're going to see next week what happens when a nation comes and conquers Israel and what happens to the women. Men, young men, the women in your lives around you, the girls in your lives, do they flourish because of your leadership? Because where righteousness happens, people flourish, and there's peace. There's not chaos. Here's what Psalm 92 says. Man, this is for us. The righteous flourish like the palm tree, and they grow like a cedar of Lebanon. They're planted in the house of the Lord, and they flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They're ever full of sap. They're ever full of sap and green. They're alive. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Men, we must pursue righteousness so the people around us flourish. Because the wake of our decisions affects more than just us. Wives, can your husbands, can your children enjoy a home of simplicity and peace when they're with you? Moms, do your children flourish underneath your leadership? I'm not saying you're perfect. We're all messed up. But do your children flourish underneath you because your righteousness leads to a simple home? Or are they always afraid to get around mom when she's had a stressful day? Are they always afraid that when you come in the room, they're, you're going to, do they flourish around you? Wives, do your husbands flourish around you? Is it peaceful for them to come home? Is it joy for them to come home? Here's what Proverbs 31, and, and this is a, something read to women, but I, I pulled out verses that talk about how a righteous woman affects other people. Here's a few selections from Proverbs 31. An excellent wife who can find... She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband, here's how she affects her husband, trust in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Her children rise up and they call her blessed. Her husband also when he praises her. Quote, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Women, wives, are you pursuing righteousness so the people around you will flourish? 
business leaders, we have a lot of you in here, business leaders, is there a culture of sincerity and purity in your business? Is it simple to work under your leadership, or are they always afraid you're going to jump them? Do your, would your employees underneath you say that they flourish because of your leadership? The rest of us, we're leading someone, we're influencing someone. You have friends. Your friends, is there a simplicity in your relationship that comes from a pure devotion to Christ? Is there always drama in your relationships? Is there always bitterness? Is there always unforgiveness? Is there always gossip? Or do people around you flourish? And when we look at the book of Judges, one of my goals of takeaway that we'll see, and we look at all of human history, even take out the Bible, just look at history. When righteousness happens, people flourish. When sin happens, destruction comes, and people suffer. But the point of all this story is not Othniel, it's not Ehud, it's not even us. These stories are here to point us to Jesus. So like Othniel, Jesus is the better and he's the final lion from the tribe of Judah. And he's going to come back in Revelation at the end with a sword and he's going to kick butt and take names just like Othniel did. Like Ehud, victory came for Jesus through weakness. Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Like Ehud, Jesus fought evil, but he didn't fight with a sword. He fought by giving his life. So as we wrap up this, getting ready for another great story next week, may we remember that sin is dangerous, that Israel is forgetful, and so are we. And that's why we're going to receive communion, because communion is all about remembrance. It's all about remembrance. Here's what Jesus says, and he took the bread when he had given things, he broke and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Here we go. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. So this morning, as we receive communion, may we turn our hearts away from idols and back to Jesus, our true and better deliverer, the one who fought the battle that we can't fight. And may we pursue righteousness so that flourishing will happen. Let's pray.